Section one of The Soul of London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corrie Samuel. Introductory and Chapter One of The Soul of London A Survey of a Modern City by Ford Maddox Ford. A traveller? By my faith, you have great reason to be sad. Published London, 1905 Introductory Most of us love places very much as we may love what, for us, are the distinguished men of our social lives. Paying a visit to such a man, we give, in one form or another, our impressions to our friends, since it is human to desire to leave some memorial that shall record our view of the man at the stage he has reached. We describe his manners, his shape, his utterances, we moralise a little about his associates, his ethics, the cut of his clothes, we relate gossip about his past before we knew him, or we predict his future when we shall be no more with him. We are, all of us who are Londoners, paying visits of greater or less duration to a personality that, whether we love it or very cordially hate it, fascinates us all. And, paying my visit, I have desired to give some such record. I have tried to make it anything rather than encyclopedic, topographical or archaeological. To use a phrase of literary slang, I have tried to get the atmosphere of modern London, of the town in which I have passed so many days, of the immense place that has been the background for so many momentous happenings to so many of my fellows. A really ideal book of the kind would not contain writing about a town. It would throw a personal image of the place onto the paper. It would not contain such a sentence as, There are in the city of blank seven hundred and twenty firms of hat manufacturers employing nineteen thousand operatives. Instead, there would be a picture of one, or two, or three hat factories, peopled with human beings, where slow and clinging veils of steam waver over vats, and over the warm felt on cutters' slabs, and there would be conveyed the idea that all these human beings melt, as it were, into the tide of humanity, as all these vapours melt into the overcast skies. Similarly, in touching upon moral ideas, a book about places must be passionate in its attempt after truth of rendering, it must be passionless in the deductions that it draws. It must let neither pity for the poor, nor liking for established reputations and clean floors, warp its presentations where they bear, say, upon the housing question. Its business is to give a picture of the place as its author sees it. Its reader must seek in other books, statistics, emotional views, or facts handy for political propaganda. This author's treatment of historic matters must again be presentations, and he must select only such broad tendencies or such minute historic characters as bear straight upon some aspect of his subject. The historic facts must illustrate must cast a light upon modern London, if that is what is being presented. There must be no writing about Dr. Johnson's chair in a certain tavern merely because it appeals to the author. The reader will find details of all such things in other books. This author's endeavour should be to make the past, the sense of all the dead Londons that have gone to the producing of this child of all the ages, like a constant ground base beneath the higher notes of the present. In that way the book might, after a fashion, forecast even the future, and contain prophecies. 
it should in fact be instinct with the historic sense which will afford apt illustrations rather than the analyst's industry or the love of the picturesque that sense of the picturesque will however be both a salvation and a most dangerous stumbling-block in a turning off an opulent high street there is a court with the exterior aspect of which i am very familiar it is close to a large freestone town hall and to a very tall red-brick fire-station it is entered by a square archway through which you get a glimpse of dazzlingly white cottages that very obviously were once thatched but that now have pretty red tiles it is flagged with very large old stones it is as picturesque as you can imagine it is a good thing for descriptive writing it might be legitimate to use it but the trouble is that it is old and if the book were all old things deluding by a love for the picturesque of antiquity it would give a very false and a very sentimental rendering of london but the author might desire to illustrate the tendency of parasitic humanity to lurk in the shadow of wealthy high streets this court would be an excellent illustration it is peopled with bad characters male and female or he might desire to illustrate the economic proposition that letting small houses to bad characters is more profitable than selling the land for the erection of flats here again the court would be an illustration its extreme cleanliness neatness and good repair would go to prove how careful that landlord was to prevent the condemnation of his rookery on sanitary grounds the author then must be careful not to sentimentalize over the picturesque his business is to render the actual his heart may be it ought to be torn at the sight of great hoardings raised for the housebreakers round narrow courts old streets famous houses he ought to be alive to the glamour of old associations of all the old associations in all their human aspects but he ought to be equally inspired with satisfaction because work is being done because dark spots are being cleared away because new haunts are being formed for new people around whom will congregate new associations and he ought to see that these new associations will in their turn grow old tender romantic glamorous enough he should in fact when he presumes to draw morals be prepared to draw all the morals he must not only sniff at the suburbs as a place of small houses and dreary lives he must remember that in each of these houses dwells a strongly individualized human being with romantic hopes romantic fears and at the end an always tragic death he must remember that the thatched mud hovels that crowded round the tower of original london were just as dull just as ordinary just as commonplace that men in them lived lives according to their scale just as squalid and just as unromantic or just as alert and just as tragic this author this ideal author then must be passionately alive to all aspects of life what picturesqueness there is in his work must arise from contrasts but actual contrasts vividly presented this is what gives interest to a work of art and such a work must before all things be interesting it is along these lines that i have tried to work one falls no doubt very far short of one's ideal but for my own part if this particular work gives a number of readers pleasure or that counterpart of pleasure which is pain 
if it awakens a Londoner here or there to an interest in the human aspects of his London, or if a man who loves London, here and there throughout the world and across many seas, is aroused to a bitter-sweet remembering of old days, if in fact its note rings true to a section of mankind, I should call myself satisfied. I should like, if it can be done unobtrusively, to disarm criticism of the title of this book. It appears pretentious, it appears soulful, it does little to indicate the scope of the book. But alas! if the critic will read the table of contents, and will then think for a minute or so of what one word will describe this whole hotchpotch, he will, whilst condemning, drop something like a tear for one who has been trying to find a better title, not for a minute or so, but for many months. CHAPTER One, FROM A DISTANCE Thought of from sufficiently far, London offers to the mind's eye singularly little of a picture. It is essentially town, and yet how little of a town, how much of an abstraction. One says, he knows his London, yet how little more will he know of London than what is actually his? And, if by chance he were an astronomer, how much better he might know his solar system. It remains in the end always a matter of approaches. He has entered it, your man who knows his London, in one or other more or less strongly featured quarter, in his Bloomsbury of dismal, decorous, unhappy, glamorous squares, in his Camden town of grimy box-like houses, yellow gas and perpetual ring of tram-horse hooves. His eyes have opened to it in his Kensington, his Hoxton, his Mayfair or his Shoreditch. He has been born in it, or he has been drawn into it, he has gone through in it the slow awakening of a childhood. Or, coming an adolescent, his eyes have been opened more or less swiftly, with more or less of a wrench, to that small portion of it that is afterwards to form a jumping-off place, into that London that he will make his. And, with its atmosphere, whatever it is, with its character, whatever it may be, with the odd touches that go to make up familiarity and the home feeling, the shape of its policemen's helmets, the cachet of its shop-fronts, effects of light cast by street-lamps on the fog, on house-fronts, on front-garden trees, on park-railings. All these little things going towards its atmosphere and character, that jumping-off place will remain for him, as it were, a glass through which he will afterwards view, a standard by which he will afterwards measure, the London that yet remains no one's. It makes, in essentials, little enough difference whether he be born in a London quarter, or whether he came, a young provincial, raw and ready to quiver at every sensation, supersensitised to every emotion. If, as a London child, he have wandered much in the streets, there will remain to him always an odd sensation of being very little, of peering round the corners of grey and gigantic buildings, upon greyer vistas of buildings more gigantic. So, with half a touch of awe, we scramble, as relatively little in maturity, round the base of an outjutting cliff into what may prove a grey cove, or what may be a great bay. It is the sense of making discoveries, of a world's opening up. In both, at the start, there will be the essential provincialism. The London child, with his unconscious acknowledgment of impersonal vistas, of infinite miles of unmeaning streets, of horizons that are the blur of lamps in fogs, simultaneously acknowledges personalities, local oddities, 
local celebrities, of whom Shepherd's Bush, Highgate or Knightsbridge may be proud. For the provincial adolescent there will be the squire with his long beard and gouty walk, the mayor with his shop in the high street, the doctor with his face screwed up as if he were tasting the full bitterness of one of his own potions. The London child, however, will earlier overcome his awe of personalities. He will wonder at the man, sallow, tiny, wizened and skew-featured, who, with the whispered reputation of a miser able to roll himself in sovereigns, and a hazy identity in a child's mind with, say, Sweeney Todd the demon barber, sells him spring-pistols, catapult-elastic, and alley-tors in the dim and evil light of a small shop, with windows obscured by broadsheets and penny-dreadfuls. He will attach a certain significance to the grimy stretch of waste-ground, it will by now have been, ah, so long since, built over, on which he played cricket with meat-tins for a wicket, or fought a dismal battle with a big boy from another school. But these local feelings sink very soon into the solid background of memories. He will discover other catapult-sellers. He will find playing-fields larger and more green. He will have it brought home to him, that there are so many of every sort of thing in the world, just as, sooner or later, it will come home to him that there are so many others of as little import in the scale of things as the catapult-seller, the green fields, and as himself. For sooner or later, the sense of the impersonality, of the abstraction that London is, will become one of the most intimate factors of his daily life, and sooner rather than later it will become one for the young provincial. He will have had his preconceptions, he will have seen photographs of bits of buildings, of bridges, he will have had his vague idea of a bulbous-domed St. Paul's, with a queer fragment of Ludgate Hill, standing isolated at a corner of the Green Park, of Nelson's Column and the Monument, of the Houses of Parliament and Buckingham Palace, all hazily united into one view, by a river Thames that is hazily suggested, green and leafy, by his own Severn, his own Stour, his own Store, his own ooze or ader. But this picture will vanish, finally and irrecoverably, like our own preconceived notions of an individual we have long thought of, whom we meet at last to find so entirely, and so very obviously, different. The emotions of his journey to town, and they are emotions from within so much more than impressions from without, will last him until he is settled, more or less, for good in his lodgings, his cellar or his boarding-house. They will last him, at least, until his things are unpacked, his credentials presented, his place found, or until he finds, after how many disillusionments, that he may never, in all probability, find any place at all. The point is that, till then, he will not have any time to look about him. But the last thing that, even then, he will get, is any picture any impression of London as a whole, any idea to carry about with him, of a city, in a plain, dominated by a great building, bounded by a horizon, brought into composition by mists, great shadows, great clouds, or a brightened, stippled foreground. It is trite enough to say that the dominant note of his first impression will be that of his own aloneness. It is none the less the dominant note of London, because, unless he is actually alone, he will pay no attention to London itself. He will talk with his companions of his or their own affairs, he will retain the personal note, shutting out the impersonal, stalling it off instinctively. 
but our young provincial being for his first time cast absolutely loose will get then his first impression of london his first tap of the hammer he will stand perhaps at a street corner perhaps at his own doorstep for a moment at a loss what to do where to go where to turn he will not ever have been so alone if he were intent upon getting a complete picture of london he might be we might imagine him setting out self-consciously his eyes closed during the transit to climb the heights of hampstead the top of the monument the dome of st paul's but he will not london with its sense of immensity that we must hurry through to keep unceasing appointments with its diffuseness its gatherings up into innumerable trade centres innumerable class districts becomes by its immensity a place upon which there is no beginning it is so to speak a ragout of titbits so appealing and so innumerable of gower's tombs and botticelli's of miles of port wine cellars or of the waxen effigies of distinguished murderers that your actual born not made londoner passes the whole dish by he is like the good scot whose haggis is only eaten by conscientious tourists like the good north german whose altbeer soup appears at table only for the discomfiture of the english or american cousin he will not visit his tower to-day because there will always remain an eternity in which to see it he will not to-morrow ensue at the millbank national gallery a severe headache because that gallery will always be there our young provincial in fact until he has finished as a separate entity his sight-seeing does not become even a potential londoner he has to exhaust that as he will have to exhaust the personalities the localities that for the time being will make up his world he must have had squeezed swiftly into him all the impressions that the london child has slowly made his own he must have asked all the ways that are to carry him to and from his daily work he must be able to find instinctively his own front door his own keyhole his own string that in a noisome cellar pulls the latch or his own bundle of rags in the corner of a railway arch daily details will have merged as it were into his bodily functions and will have ceased to distract his attention he will have got over the habit of relying in these things upon personal contacts he will have acquired an alertness of eye that will save him from asking his way on his underground he will glance at a board rather than inquire of a porter on bus routes he will catch instinctively on the advancing and shapeless mass of colour and trade announcements the small names of taverns of crosses of what were once outlying hamlets he will have in his mind a rough sketch-map of that plot of london that by right of living in he will make his own then he will be the londoner and to the measure of the light vouchsafed will know his london yet to the great majority of londoners whose residence is not an arriere boutique london will remain a matter of a central highway a central tunnel or a central conduit more or less long a daily route whose two extremities are a more or less permanent sleeping-place and a more or less permanent workshop a thing figured on a map like the bolus of certain south americans a long cord with balls at the extremities at the one there will gradually congregate the parts of a home at the other the more or less familiar more or less hypnotising more or less congenial surroundings of his daily work it will be a matter of a daily life passing unnoticed 
London itself will become the merest abstraction. He will not moralise upon London. Occasionally a periodical will inform him with notes of exclamation that London is a very remarkable thing. He will read, London, more than anything else, more than all else in the scenery of England, gives food for thought. This, for awe and wonder, not for boasting, is unique, and he will acquiesce. Nevertheless, awe and wonder are the last things he will feel. London, in fact, is so essentially a background, a matter so much more of masses than of individuals, so much more, as it were, a very immense symphony orchestra than a quartet party, with any leader not negligible, that its essential harmony is not to be caught by any human ear. It can only be treated as a ground bass, a drone, on top of which one pipes one's own small individual melody. A human aggregation, it leaves discernible so very little of the human, that it is almost as essentially a natural product as any great stretch of alluvial soil. Your marshy delta was brought down in the course of a thousand years or so. Raindrops, born a long way up in the hills, united to run through fissures in the earth, through soil drains, through runnels in the moss of woods, through channels in the clay of sodden fields, each drop bearing infinitesimal grains of what, towards the sea at the end, becomes alluvial soil, each drop quarried, each drop carried, each drop endured for its moment, and then went hence and was no more seen. It left the grain of loam it had carried. So, precisely out of the clouds of the nations, drops have been born. It is that oblivion, that, being no more seen, that is, in matters human, the note of London. It never misses, it never can miss anyone. It loves nobody, it needs nobody, it tolerates all the types of mankind. It has palaces for the great of the earth, it has crannies for all the earth's vermin. Palace and cranny, vacated for a moment, find new tenants as equably as the whole one makes in a stream. For, as a critic, London is wonderfully open-minded. On successive days it will welcome its king going to be crowned, its general who has given it a province, its enemies who have fought against it for years, its potentate guest from Tehran, it will welcome each with identically rapturous cheers. This is not so much because of a fickle-mindedness, as because, since it is so very vast, it has audiences for all players. It forgets very soon, because it knows so well that, in the scale of things, any human achievement bulks very small. It cherishes less than any other town the memory of its mighty dead. Its message for humanity is that it is the business of man to keep all on going not to climb onto pinnacles. Its street names are those of ground landlords. Its commemorative tablets, on house-fronts, are no more to be read than any epitaphs in any churchyards. It is one gigantic pantheon of the dead level of democracy, and, in its essentials, it is a home neither for the living nor the dead. If, in its tolerance, it finds a place for all eccentricities of physiognomy, of costume, of cult, it does so because it crushes out and floods over the significance of those eccentricities. It, as it were, lifts an eyelid and turns a hair, neither for the blue silk gown of an Asiatic, the white robes of a Moor, the kilts of a Highlander, nor the silk hat, 
inscribed in gold letters with a prophecy of retribution or salvation of a religious enthusiast. In its innumerable passages and crannies it swallows up Mormon and Mussulman, Benedictine and Agapemonite, Jew and Malay, Russian and Neapolitan. It assimilates and slowly digests them, converting them, with the most potent of all juices, into the singular and inevitable product that is the Londoner, that is, in fact, the modern. Its spirit, extraordinary and unfathomable, because it is given to no man to understand the spirit of his own age, spreads, like sepia in water, a tinge of its own all over the world. Its extraordinary and miasmic dialect, the dialect of South Essex, is tinging all the local speeches of England. Deep in the New Forest you will find red brick houses trying to look like London villas. Deep in the swamps of coastal Africa you will find lay white men trying to remain Londoners, and religious white men trying to turn Negroes into suburban chapel worshippers. London is the world town, not because of its vastness. It is vast because of its assimilative powers, because it destroys all race characteristics, insensibly, and, as it were, anaesthetically. A Polish Jew changes into an English Hebrew, and then into a Londoner, without any legislative enactments, without knowing anything about it. You may watch, say, a Berlin junker, arrogant, provincial, unlicked, unbearable to any other German, execrable to anyone not a German, turning, after a year or two, into a presentable and only just not typical Londoner, subdued, quiet in the manner of collars, ties, coat, voice and backbone, and naturally extracting a sir from a policeman. London will do all this imperceptibly. And, in externals, that is the high watermark of achievement of the modern spirit. Immense, without being immediately impressive, tolerant, without any permanent preferences, attracting unceasingly specimens of the best of all earthly things, without being susceptible of any perceptible improvement. London, perhaps because of its utter lack of unity, of plan, of the art of feeling, is the final expression of the present stage. It owes its being to no one race, to no two, to no three. It is, as it were, the meeting-place of all Occidentals, and of such of the Easterns as can come, however remotely, into touch with the Western spirit. Essentially unmusical, in it may be found, as it were, on show, the best of all music. And it has, at odd moments, on show, the best products of the cook, of the painter, of the flower-gardener, of the engineer, of the religious and of the scientists. It does without any architecture, because in essentials it is an assembly of tents beside a river, a perennial Ninji Novgorod bazaar, a permanent world's fair. It is a place in which one exists in order to gain the means of living out of it, an epitome, an abstract of the Christian's world, which he inhabits only to prepare himself for one more bright, if less glamorous. Perhaps, for times to come, some individual of today, striking the imagination of posterity, may catch and preserve an entirely individual representation of the London of today. We have our individual presentations of so many vanished Londons. We have the town of a riverside, 
with steep serrated warehouse-like wharf-dwellings dominated by a great gothic cathedral through its streets wind improbably gigantic processions of impossibly large mediaeval horsemen we have a tudor london merging into the early jacobean of the dramatists a small provincial-minded crooked-streeted gabled town walled circumscribed still set in fields whose hedges public-minded citizens of the train-bands delighted to break down we have the two londons of the diarists a london still of crooked streets of a gothic cathedral with an essential stench a glow of torches round house-ends with red crosses on low doors a rumble of plague-carts then a london rising out of ashes with streets heaven knows crooked enough but having lost its cathedral and its gabled houses so perhaps for the london of our day some clerk of the admiralty is without doubt keeping like pepys his diary some journalist like defoe is writing fraudulent memoirs some caricaturist now before us some novelist too much or too little advertised to-day will succeed in persuading posterity that his london is the london that we live in but assuredly don't know we may take that to be certain yet it is not so certain that his london will be as near the real thing as were in their days those of pepys of hogarth or even of albert smith one may hazard that without chanting jeremiads to the art of to-day but we may set it down that pepys going out from dover to welcome charles the second had somewhere at the back of his head an image of his london of a town of a few strongly marked features of a certain characteristic outline of jagged roofs of overhanging upper stories of a river that was a highway forever clamorous with the cry of oars so too had hogarth when at calais dickens posting as the uncommercial traveller towards france over denmark hill may almost have had an impression of a complete and comparatively circumscribed london but so many things as obvious as the enormously increased size as secondary as the change in our habits of locomotion militate against our nowadays having an impression a remembered bird's-eye of london as a whole the londoner bites off from his town a piece large enough for his own chewing we have no symbol of london comparable to the luthier of paris none to set beside the figure on the reverse of our copper coins it is comparatively easy to have in the mind the idea of a certain green island familiar in its backward tilt towards the shores of europe familiar in its rugged outline in its setting of silver sea we may think of it as a bit of coloured marble facing broken from a palace wall with counties mottled in green counties in pink counties in buff in blue in yellow we may think of it embossed in relief out of a robin's egg blue sea with the misty white cliffs of kent the slate and marble of devon the serpentine of cornwall or the half-submerged rafts of the outer hebrides forming the edges it is in fact comparatively easy to evoke a picture of england as a whole still easier perhaps to think of this world as a green orange revolving round a candle or as the pink and blue of a mercator's projection one may sail easily round england or circumnavigate the globe but not the most enthusiastic geographer one must of course qualify these generalizations with an as a rule ever memorized a map of london 
certainly no one ever walks round it. For England is a small island, the world is infinitesimal amongst the planets, but London is illimitable. End of section one.